This morning, I'm going to be reading from Luke 7, verses 36 through 50. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which one of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I entered, she did not cease to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this? Who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Shame on you. You've all probably had those words spoken to you. You know the impact that they had. Shame is the topic of this text that we come to this morning. So we're going through a number of Jesus encounters. Last week, Jesus encounters hopelessness. And we're looking at stories in the Gospels of how Jesus encountered people that are, even though they're worlds apart in both time and distance, they're people just like you and me with similar struggles to us. And I think you all know that Shame, which maybe a generation or two ago was kind of relegated to um, fundamentalist religious groups that use shame a lot. And now we have kind of in Western cultures, we have cultures of shame where it's more of a, a uh, political or a social, and nobody's calling it fundamentalism, but that's kind of what it is. You need to adhere to our beliefs and our systems and our people or there is shame brought on you. And as I talk about shame, I'm thinking about all these different directions that shame is coming upon you, upon me, upon others in our culture. Shame often comes from something that you did or said or failed to do. And you're looking at your own performance and it falls short maybe even of your own expectations of yourself, let alone cultural expectations of you. And you're ashamed of something or you're ashamed of something traumatic or painful that was done to you. And many of you are sitting in that space this morning that it's not something that you did wrong, but it's something wrong that was done to you 
that brought a lot of hurt, a lot of disgrace into your life. Um, maybe it's coming from, that shame is coming from some, some unfair or even dishonest assumptions or even accusations that other people are making of you. As you hear people talking about you, maybe in the workplace, you feel shame. Shame is very often attached to our identity, and there are all these layers to our identity. So shame could be all the way from like, I don't like my appearance, my physical body, my appearance, and you feel ashamed about that. Or your vocation or employer um, just went through a week of um, faith and work certification. And as I was on some of these different calls in, in Zoom, and you go to these breakout rooms, and people are introducing themselves from all over the world, 12 different countries, and people would come on there and be like, oh, you're a pastor, I'm just a, and I'm like, can we drop the words, I'm just a, but, but there's a little bit of shame there of like, oh, I'm not in, you know, so-called full-time Christian ministry, or I'm, I'm just a this or that. There can be shame attached to your status or your either how you measure success or how other people measure success. It could be shame associated with groups that you're a part of. And it's like, well, yeah, I, I grew up there, but, you know, or, or yeah, I voted that way. Or yes, I'm a Christian and we can be ashamed of things that Christians are associated with in our culture today. My point is shame's coming at us from all these different directions. It's coming from people and groups and shame is also self-imposed. That sometimes other people don't even know what you know about you, but you feel shame. And you're like, man, if, if other people found out that I had done this thing, that I think these kinds of thoughts, I would feel shame. And I want to take just a moment to, because this is about shame, to kind of differentiate two important concepts. One is guilt and one is shame. And guilt is usually related to doing where shame is related to being. And what I mean is you are, you are guilty or not guilty objectively because you've done certain things or you failed to do certain things. So if you're standing before a judge and you've just like robbed a bank, like the, the judge doesn't really care whether you feel shame or not for your actions. The punishment is still going to come because objectively you did something wrong, right? That makes sense? But shame is, is much more, it's real, but it's a little bit more subjective, it's personal, it's, it's existential. It's more of this emotional, psychological pain and distress over how something makes you look or feel. Now, we're talking about this because Luke is sharing a story this morning about a woman who dealt with a tremendous amount of shame. And I want you to see this morning how Jesus encounters her shame and heals her. And Luke is going to share these three points. There's the exposure of shame, there is the exchange of shame, and then there are the expressions of the unashamed. Um, let, me, let me kind of set the scene for you here. So Jesus has, for a period of time now, been teaching and healing all over the northern part of Israel, which was this region called Galilee. And there are crowds, just throngs of people coming, listening to his words, kind of eating his words and just consuming everything that this brilliant rabbi has to say. But at the same time, he's this miracle-working healer. And so he's setting people free from all kinds of different diseases and brokenness. And at the same time, as crowds are going after Jesus, there is this growing, not just skepticism and cynicism, but there is a growing opposition to Jesus amongst the religious parties of his day. 
So the most powerful religious leaders are actually opposed to Jesus. Interestingly enough, if you like just kind of skim your eyes back a couple of verses, you'll see right before this story, Jesus is accused of being a glutton and a drunkard because he's befriended, and other people would say, you've befriended tax collectors and sinners. And again, you notice the identity linkage. It's a, it's a shame that you are a tax collector. You are sinners. And now here in this story, a Pharisee, which was one of the religious sects of Jesus' day. So this Pharisee named Simon reaches out to Jesus with an invitation. Would you come to my home? I want to have dinner with you. Now we can discern something of Simon's intention for that dinner. Kind of reading between the lines of how he treats Jesus or doesn't treat Jesus. So, so beginning in verse 44, Jesus is actually rebuking his host saying, I came into your home, but he says, you gave me no water to wash my feet. You gave me no kiss. You did not anoint my head with oil. And what Jesus is saying is you didn't give me any kind of normal Eastern customary way of hospitality or welcome. You just sat across the room with your powerful, rich friends and kind of examined me from a distance. Everything you did, Simon, was communicating to me feelings of superiority. Like, I'm better than you. I'm not going to wash your feet. I'm not going to even say hello. Now, incredibly, as the dinner gets away, or gets underway, the world's worst host doesn't even realize that a notorious sinner of that town has slipped into his home. And... It's this woman who's, you know, and I just picture her standing off to the side, away from the action, listening to Jesus and the others as they interact. And this has probably happened to you. I don't know, a couple weeks ago we hosted a Super Bowl party at our home. There were a bunch of people. And yeah, yeah, I look around the room and I'm like, yeah, I know most of these people. And because you were invited to bring friends and some of those friends brought, brought friends, sometimes you look across the room and you're like, huh, I don't even know that person who's like eating my food and drinking my drink, but, but that's cool. And this is kind of, that kind of situation, except it's not some, like, I don't know that person, but it's probably a friend of a friend. Again, Luke is going to make this point. This is a woman, and the story implies that she's probably infamous for sexual immorality. So the religious leaders, not only is she not a stranger to them, she is way, way, way beneath them. But nevertheless, she's there observing And there's this point in the conversation where love so overwhelms her soul that she makes this beeline to Jesus and then we'll see this story unfold. And I'll come back to her actions in just a moment. But for this first point, I want you to notice how others perceived her and how they treated her. And so I said the first point is the exposure of shame. And again, you're picturing this group of men in the Eastern culture. You have a very low table, like maybe the height of this stage. So instead of like sitting in chairs and kind of facing the table, everyone would kind of recline on their side with their legs stretched out behind them and they would eat around the table this way. So you got this group of of wealthy religious leaders, they're eating, they're drinking, they're conversing. And this uninvited guest is suddenly moving toward Jesus, like probably sobbing and gets down on her knees and lets down her hair and begins washing his feet with her tears and with perfume and with her hair. And all the religious leaders we see in the story are disgusted. 
First, they're disgusted at this woman. How, how has this woman made her way in here? They're, they're repulsed by her actions. But you notice in the text, they're also repulsed by Jesus doesn't seem to have a problem with this. So they're also now disgusted at Jesus. And if you, you look at verse 37, I said Luke has already very candidly described her as, quote, a woman of the city who was a sinner. But look at Simon's internal dialogue. So this is what he's thinking to himself in verse 39. As he's watching the scene unfold and he's disgusted, he's repulsed, he's thinking to himself, if this man, meaning Jesus, if Jesus were really a prophet, he would know who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. And friends, that's the language of shaming. Because he's thinking to himself, it's not just that this woman is guilty of some specific sinful actions. It is that she is a sinner. That is her identity. And in fact, she's a very notorious sinner. And he's thinking to himself, how is it that Jesus doesn't know what sort of woman this is? That's the language of shaming. The religious insider is scandalized and he wants to out her. So that's what he's thinking, because he's going to start a conversation with Jesus, he thinks. He's like, obviously, you don't know who this is, so I'm going to expose her to you, you traveling rabbi, so that you can be as disgusted as I am. And make no mistake, that's, that's why the religious leaders want to expose her. It's not that they're exposing her shameful past and bringing something very dark to light because they believe Jesus is exactly the one who needs to hear this because Jesus is exactly the one who can identify with and forgive your sin. No, they're, they're thinking, shame on you. And I want to just pause there and say whether it's a kind of religious fundamentalism, and I mean that very broadly across all kinds of religions, or if it's a, just a social or a political type of fundamentalism, people think shame on you, or they even speak those words shame on you, because it's a way to distance ourselves from other people's problems and kind of like wash our hands of them. Like, I don't have to get involved because you're a disgrace. Again, not just you've done disgraceful things, but you are a disgrace, it's a way of feeling superior to other people when you say shame on you. It's a way of the self-righteous humiliating and manipulating and even punishing other people to think or to say shame on you. And I want you to notice Jesus' response. He's not, he's not clueless and naive like Simon thinks. You know, he, he's not like, wow, yeah, totally, my bad. I had no idea. And here's the first incredible thing here in this text. Simon thinks Jesus is this naive. You, you just don't know what kind of woman this is. And maybe it's not that Jesus was like reading his thoughts per se. That's what it seems like. Maybe Jesus is just so attuned to human nature that he's like, Simon, I can sense judgment in your heart. This is verse 40. So I have something to say to you. Okay, again, Simon hasn't even spoken this disgrace yet. He's just thinking it. And Jesus says, I know what you're thinking. And I have something to say to you. And what Jesus says is this parable then in verses 41 and 42. Let me read it again. It's very short. But he's telling this story to Simon, but he's telling it in front of everyone that's gathered there, including this woman. And he says, a certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, 
and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon answers correctly, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. Now, let me just put this in today's, and that, that's the whole, it's a very short parable. Let me just put it in today's terms. So I looked this up. Colorado minimum wage is $12.56 an hour, okay? What a denarius was, a denarius was a, like, low-income wage for the agricultural worker who worked a 12-hour day. So at minimum wage, a 12-hour day would get you right around $150. And what he says is one owes 50 times that and one owes 500 times that. So imagine one person owning uh, or owing like $7,500 and the other owes $75,000. And he says, which of them loves the lender more for the forgiveness? And by the way, do you already sense the kindness and the grace of Jesus that, you know, he could have just outed this guy in front of all his friends. He could have just humiliated him as this man is trying to do to the woman. But Jesus isn't like, ha you want to shame somebody? I'll fight fire with fire, and I'll shame you first. This is such a kind approach that in a story format that is not directly, hey, Simon, what's wrong with you? But that's essentially what he's saying. He's basically like, Simon, why is it that this woman has so much more gratitude and joy in her heart than you do. Because Simon, if, if you're the good guy and she's the bad guy, why is she the one with all the love? And that's the parable. Why is she the one with all the love? And the simple answer is revealed in the parable. It's because she knows Jesus has forgiven me an enormous unpayable debt. She has already known firsthand just the staggering weight of her shame. And now she has experienced the staggering beauty and glory and magnitude of Jesus' forgiveness. And so her heart's overwhelmed with love. But Simon, he's this other guy. He spent his life trying to be good, trying to find righteousness in himself and his own performance of the law. And he probably thinks, you know, I'm not perfect, but I'm doing a pretty awesome job. And so Simon thinks, "I, I don't need grace. So he thinks grace is unnecessary for me and it should be unavailable to people like her. To paraphrase Philip Graham Ryken, unnecessary for me, unavailable for her. So Jesus is responding with grace as they're trying to expose her shame. And this brings us to a second major point of the text, the exchange of shame. And you notice in the text, Jesus says in the parable, the moneylender canceled the debt of both debtors. And I'll share this with you. It's the Greek word charizomai, which is based on the Greek word charis, which means grace. So in context, canceled obviously means he forgave the debt. He, he, he like lined them out and was like, okay, you owed this before. Now you do not owe it. 
but it's tied to the word grace. In other words, he's graciously forgiven the debt. In other words, this is not like some kind of quid pro quo. You know, sometimes you're, you, you, you go out with a friend and they're like, hey, can I borrow 20 bucks for lunch? I didn't bring my wallet. And you're like, sure. And then they owe you 20 bucks, right? And then later on, they're like, hey, I borrowed your car and I filled up the tank. And then you're like, ah, you know what? Forget about the 20 bucks. Like, we're, we're good. And you've kind of bartered something out. The picture here is that th- there's no... There's no trade. There's no bartering going on. It's not like the master's like, hey, 7,500, tell you what, um, if you give me your mule, I'll call it good. The 75,000, like if you give me that little plot of land over here that's in your family's name, I'll just cancel your debt. The idea is he cancels it in exchange for nothing. Okay? And that's, that's why I'm calling this the exchange of shame because in the parable, who are the two debtors? They're Simon and this woman. And who's the moneylender? It's Jesus. What's the point? Well, the first point is Jesus paid our debt. And he uses the word charizomai to show us this is an act of grace. It's unmerited, undeserved, unpayable kindness. And that's the first picture of how Jesus encounters shame. I want you to know that. That as this woman comes broken, and, and just unashamed in her affection for Jesus, Jesus in front of this whole crowd of people who are looking down their noses at her is basically saying, look, you and I both know you owe a debt to God, you know, because she has done wrong, okay? She's taken the one life, the body, you know, her, her, her life made in the image of God, and she has misused it, and she's been misused by others at all. I don't mean to say that other people aren't doing horrible things to her, but I'm just saying she owes a debt, and Jesus is saying, however, you're forgiven your debt. I paid your debt in full. And that's the first picture of this exchange, okay? Because you know, you know, again, with the $20 illustration, let's say you do borrow $20 from me and go out and get lunch. And then uh, later on, I say, you know what, like, don't worry about the, the repaying of the $20, it's like, does that, does that little debt just go poof? And it's like, oh, sweet. Like, grace just gets rid of debts. No, the idea is if, if I loaned you $20 and I say later on, you don't have to repay that, I, I forgive that debt, who actually paid the debt? I did. Okay? And that's the picture of what Jesus has done for all of us is that where we have a debt, the first exchange is he's just like, give me your debt and let me pay your debt. But there's even more of an exchange happening here, so let's keep going on. So as this woman is bringing all this shame to Jesus, as she commits these acts at dinner that all the other guests find to be so scandalous, what happens? Do you notice in the text how her shame shifts to Jesus? And the scandal that everyone's looking at her The scandal is shifted to Jesus. The disgrace, the dishonor is shifting to Jesus. What's the point? The point is not only did Jesus pay our debt, but Jesus also bore our shame. I can put it like this. Why did Jesus die? Why did the only sinless, perfect person die if death is the result of sin? Well, the Bible's answer is he died as a substitute he basically is saying to us, like, by faith, I am taking your sin, your debt, I'm putting it on myself, I'm receiving in my body the consequences that your sins deserve so that you're forgiven. You get to go free. You get to live eternally with God forever. 
That's why Jesus died. But you ever think about this? Why did Jesus die the way he did? And we're coming up on this not that many weeks out with Good Friday where we ponder this. Why did he die the way he did? And what I mean is beaten and scourged and mocked and spat upon and dressed like a king and ridiculed and stripped naked and nailed to a tree. And the picture of that is that Jesus wasn't just bearing your guilt. He was also bearing your shame. He was absorbing in his body all of the things that bring you disgrace and dishonor, embarrassment, humiliation. And he says, put that on me. Hebrews 12, verse 2, to jump to another text, invites us, says, look to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. And the picture of that is Jesus is hanging there on the cross and it, despising the shame. Well, you could say like he hated it. I'm sure he did. But despise is to like look down on something and just think like, I think nothing of you. Like to despise another person could mean like I hate you and it could also mean like I'm just going to keep driving by all your needs and just look down on you and think nothing of that. And that's the word that's used here. And it's saying for the joy set before him, Jesus is hanging there on the cross just drenched in our shame, naked and exposed, saying let me take your shame. Let me absorb your shame so that you don't carry it around for the rest of your life. Give it to me. Now let's quickly think about a couple more exchanges here. So Jesus has been invited to dine with these religious leaders. And as a very influential rabbi, like Jesus could have seized the moment, right? And what I mean is he could have played his cards in such a way that he comes out of this dinner with them being like, yeah, I, 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 guess, we, I guess we misjudged him. Like, he's actually more on our side than we thought. So, so Jesus could have played this scenario out where he leaves this dinner with more esteem, with more affirmation, with more support, with more status and approval from the in-religious crowd. But you see him doing the opposite. He gives it all away. And the third exchange here is that Jesus exchanged acceptance for rejection. Because in order to truly see this woman forgive her sin, cover her shame. Jesus had to suffer the rejection of his peers. You know, th this is an incredible picture. We, we talk about metaphorically, which, which is a reflection of something that's literal. We talk about giving someone a seat at the table. Um, Jesus is the only person in this room, even though he's an invited guest, he actually becomes the host and he's essentially the only person there who's giving this woman a seat at the table. And he's publicly recognizing your status has been changed from sinner to forgiven. And you have been welcomed by God. But there's a cost for Jesus to welcome her, to accept her, to show hospitality. And I mean spiritually and, and physically to her. And the cost is Jesus is cast out. Jesus is scorned. Jesus is rejected. But he's more than willing to do that, to let one ashamed woman, to let you and to let me know, I take rejection in order to accept you. And then one more here. Notice the very last verse of the story. 
So Jesus has paid the woman's debt, embraced her shame, identified with her over and against all the religious crowd. But there's one more thing here. The last verse that Maddie read. And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And what's fascinating here is Jesus actually doesn't say, I mean, this is a fine translation, but Jesus actually doesn't say go in peace. Because there's a standard Greek word for in, and he doesn't use that word. He uses a different Greek word that would mean to or into. So what he's literally saying is not like, oh, go in peace, but he's literally saying go to peace, go into peace. And this is incredible because I think, I think this is what Jesus is saying. So the religious are looking at this woman and they are exposing her shame. They're heaping um, just resentment on her and this air of superiority. And, and where do you think they want this woman to go? I mean, physically, they want her to leave now. She's ruining the party. But they want her to go finally to judgment. They want her to go to wrath. They want her to go to condemnation. They want her to go to hell. That's what the religious people want. And right in front of all of them, again, I think knowing their thoughts, he's like, nope. Because your sins are forgiven, because you have peace with God, go into that peace. Go enjoy that peace. And it's just this clear to me that Jesus absorbs first, first the wrath of the religious. And then secondly, the, the actual wrath and the punishment of God, the Father, in order to give this woman peace. And he does the same for all of us who put our faith in him. So now we come kind of what, to what you probably thought was the uh, main point of the text, which is the woman's actions. But I put this last, and I call this the expressions of the unashamed, because I think this story actually is written in reverse. I think what we need to understand is the woman came there in the first place because she had already doubtless been watching Jesus from a distance and she had seen something in him. She had seen something in his touch of other people. She had heard something in his words, in his tone, in his body language that communicated to her, here is a man who loves me differently than all the others. Here is a man, and it's, it's like she already knew that she was forgiven because of how she hears Jesus speak to other people and what he's doing. And that's why she's coming with her most precious possession, essentially, this alabaster box or jar to, to pour out to worship Jesus. And I think it's incredible that this story is all about shame, yet ironically, the person who should have been too ashamed to be there goes right to center stage and does what she does. And I want to show you this, that the love of Jesus, the grace of Jesus, the forgiveness of Jesus had already restored her soul. And now here are the expressions of a soul that's been transformed from shame to unashamed. Three things. Number one, notice that the acceptance of Jesus activates our faith and our love. So as she sees Jesus interacting with women, which rabbis didn't do in that day, she realizes this rabbi would accept me too. This rabbi would forgive me too. And he's the son of God. He has the authority to do that. 
Why does she come trusting Jesus? Why does she come loving him so reservedly? It's, again, it's like she realizes there's, there's no man who's ever loved and welcomed me like this man. The acceptance of Jesus activates our faith and love. So where everyone else is saying, shame on you, shame on you. You are a disgrace on yourself, on your family, on this town. Shame, shame, shame. And Jesus is like, well, I accept you. I love you. I forgive you. And that activates this trust and love. A number of years ago, we were getting ready to head out of town um, on a Friday night to go up to the mountains with the family. And uh, first and only time that this has happened in my life, but I'm, I'm driving my Jeep um, with kids in the back seat, and Marty's right here, and uh, like the sun was in my eyes, and I like I had no idea that the road turned, so I just went straight ahead, um, went over like a two foot high raised concrete median, went through a fence, like did a Dukes of Hazard off this jump down into this dirt area under I seventy, and we landed, and uh, one of the boys from the back seat said, "Did we just die?" I was like, no, but I'm, I'm dead. It, it was humiliating. It was, it was a shameful thing to be like, how did I not see until the last second that the road turned? Uh, like, I don't think I'm a bad driver, but now obviously I am, you know? That's, that's embarrassing. That's humiliating. That's shameful. And like, Marty's not angry. She's like, we're all okay. It's called dad who's sitting over here. He comes and is like, hey, it's probably been a stressful evening for you. Like, why don't you just take my car and you can drive up to the mountains and I'll get a ride back to my house. And I mean, that's what we ended up doing. And I just want to say, like, like just the, the calm, kindness, warmth, the, the acceptance, the love, instead of the judgment and, like, shame on you for doing that. Like, it activated trust in my heart. It activated love. I mean, I made her drive because I was still, like, shaking. And I was like, I, I don't think I should be driving birthed past tonight, <laughs> you know. But, but do you see how, like, when you know that you've done something shameful, embarrassing, humiliating, and someone says, it's okay, you know, stuff happens. I love you. Let's, let's, let's just go have a good time. That stirs in you something. That's, that's what Jesus is doing. That's my point, okay? So the acceptance of Jesus activates our faith and love. Number two, the acceptance of Jesus focuses our attention. I love how this woman could not seemingly have cared less who else was in the room. Because she knows the one who's forgiven her. She knows the one who's loved her. And, and like, I'm sure there are all these judgmental glances and stares but she is dialed into one person in that room, not caring about like how many social taboos and, and cultural norms and conventions have I trampled to be here in the first place. I mean, if you don't know, we don't, we don't read this in the story, but it's there because if you know social conventions, like women didn't go out in public, like without their husband, they certainly did not let down their hair in public. So she's doing all these things that she just knows to do. She's letting down her hair and just sobbing and weeping. Why? Because she's engrossed. She is immersed. She is captivated, preoccupied, uninhibited in her focus on the one. Because his acceptance has done that for her. Everyone else is like, shame on you. But his acceptance is like, 
I focus on the one. And then finally, notice the acceptance of Jesus ignites, ignites our worship. And I love this stark contrast in this story. You have this, this passionate, emotive, even messy affection of this woman that stands in stark contrast to this just like cold, dispassionate, cognitive, religious thing. Right? You see it in the text. You see these guys sitting there with their, I just see their arms folded and just like, hmm. I don't find that answer of Jesus that satisfactory just now. And she comes in. And while Simon's like, hey, I'd be willing to share a portion of a meal that I've already prepared for myself and my friends. She's like, mm, here's my most treasured possession. Break, pour out. It's all yours. It's surrendered to you. And what, what all of this is, the, the gratitude, the joy, the weeping, the pouring out and surrender is all, it's worship in real life. She's not singing a song and praying a prayer, but she's saying, you have all of the love of my heart. You are the most worthy thing to me. Now, I also want you to notice, like, th this probably feels a little taboo. I'm going to say it anyway. I want you to notice she, she took the tools of her trade and repurposed them. So the tools of her trade are her body, her hair, and her perfume, the ointment, okay? I'm not trying to be gross, but, like, this, this is all she knows. And she is literally like, Jesus, what do I, like, Worship is now taking the tools of my trade, like everything that I've used to get what I've gotten to this point, and, and they're surrendered now for a different purpose and a different mission and a different master. And I want you to just take a moment and to even apply this to your own worker vocation. And I'm not, I'm not implying that you do something overtly sinful like she probably was, but just in response to the grace and love of God, how would you say, here are the tools of my trade. You have won my heart. And so I surrender those tools, those things that I'm used to using to, to make friends and influence people, to make money, to, to plan my future and the next step up in my career. And just say, Lord, it's surrendered to you because you've ignited worship in my heart. Again, not just Sunday worship which is great. Like we should sing out and cry out and pray and, and enjoy Christ. But what about when we go to work on Monday saying, you've ignited my worship here too. And I just wonder if we are so grateful for grace, so indebted to grace that we don't care who knows it. Because again, I think probably your vocation and work is the biggest context for you to express something like what this woman did of like, I should be ashamed, but you have so captured my heart. I am unashamed and profuse in my love for Jesus. And what should that look like? What could that look like? You know, the, like the ultimate solution to shame, um, and I know there are psychologists stuff that would disagree but I, I think the one ultimate healing for shame is exactly what you know it's kind of like what my wife did when I wrecked the car it is just like if you show up with someone and, and you know like there's the shame instead of saying shame on you if you identify with that person and I don't mean like carving out for their shame or that bad thing I mean including that part you're like I identify with you I, I know about that and I love you, and I'm not going anywhere. And that shame just 
melts away. Or I picture shame as like this burning fire. And, and that kind of love just drowns it. And Jesus is coming into this woman's life. And Jesus wants to come into your life with whatever shame you carry. And to say, let, let me drown that fire that's burning. Sometimes you even feel a burning feeling when you feel real shame. And he's like, let me drown that in my love. And that's the theme here. In Jesus, shameful brokenness becomes unashamed love.